Welcome to the Future of Growth podcast with Agrify, formerly known as Agrify Live. Here, we'll be exploring all things related to cannabis, ag tech, controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, cultivation science, industry trends, and more. Informed by science and driven by data, episodes will enlighten our audience through open dialogue with thought leaders, innovators, and industry disruptors who are forging the future of growth. Join our host, David Kessler, Chief Science Officer at Agrify, as he dives into the many facets that cannabis and agriculture have to offer. Stay connected with Agrify by joining us on all platforms at Agrify Corp and by visiting our website, www.agrify.com. Sit tight for another episode of The Future of Growth, coming at you now. Thank you for joining me for another session of Agrify Live. I'm so thrilled to be joined by two veteran guests. We have Trek Manzoni, uh, one of the founders of Dope Magazine and uh, the head of multiple very successful brands across the Pacific Northwest and in other states as well, as well as Miles Durham, an expert cultivator, the head of cultivation at Greenstone Fire and a well-regarded genetics expert in the field of cannabis. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining me again and making time for our listeners. Not for sure. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Sweet. So guys, uh, I don't know if everyone was here on the last two episodes where you guys were, but maybe it would be good if we started by just giving a little bit of background on the two of you. And then from there, we can jump right in. I know everyone's really excited to talk about signature strains and what makes them unique and how to make the most of those you know, unique genetics. So uh, Trek, let's just jump in with you. How did you get into cannabis and you know, what is your, your background here? Uh, I've been in, you know, in the cannabis space for about 15 years since around 2007. Um, I got into it kind of by accident. Uh, I was in the, uh, you know, banking and mortgage world before that, uh, you know, the crash was happening around that time. And I was on a snowboarding trip with a buddy of mine who brought another buddy along who had some of the best looking purple kush I'd ever seen. And, you know, a couple months later, he helped me build a grow out of my house. And, you know, we got into the crazy world of medical cannabis, opened some doctor's offices, started working with patients and helping them, you know, get access to, uh, to cannabis in Washington State. Um, uh, you know, got into the dispensary side of things, opened up a couple of retail locations to, you know, really help with that safe access. Um, you know, got involved in the media space. Uh, uh, me and a few friends uh, started a magazine called Dope Magazine. Um, but, you know, I've always really loved cultivation. Uh, by no means am I anywhere close to uh, a master grower. I'm, I'm more of, you know, a hobbyist, if you want to call it that. But I know enough to be dangerous. And, you know, I really enjoy being around the plants. I enjoy the uniqueness of strains. You know, I like marketing and branding aspect of things. So, you know, really around 2012, 2013, when I-502 passed in Washington and you were able to build out and, and you know, create legal grows and sell cannabis legally, um, I kind of switched into that side of the industry and uh, started working on developing brands and, and you know, building out cultivation facilities. Um, and, you know, it's been a wild, crazy ride since then. And I'm lucky enough to still still be involved in the industry and still working with uh, working with these beautiful plants. 
that's awesome track and it's a great story and one that i think echoes with a lot of listeners starting off with a, a simple personal grow and expanding into a legal medical market and then into a fully recreational market is has been very exciting miles what was your journey can you share that with our listeners yeah um you know i like drifted around a lot after high school and didn't really know what i wanted to do and one day my dad was like why don't you join the army so i did and joined the military and had a great time but unfortunately i had a real bad medical accident in the army and had to get out and i spent years floating around with no direction trying to find purpose in life and weed came around and saved my life and i made it a point to dedicate my life to growing it in the best form it could possibly be and it's one of the very few things that i actually love and i'm passionate about once i leave the military and I encourage anybody that is lost and hasn't really found passion yet to maybe looking at this plant because that's what it did for me. It's it's so true, Miles. It's saved so many people, both from its medicinal benefits, but also through the uniqueness of the plant itself and how it can draw you in. You can have millions of different strains, different cultivars, but perfection is hard to achieve because there's a moving target. No matter how good you grew it last time, there's probably something you can do to grow it better. And that's what we really wanna talk about today is how do you take a strain, which is great, a unique strain, something that not everybody has, and how do you grow it better? And then how do you capitalize on that? Do you, do you try and breed with it? Do you try and brand around it? Do you wanna make a name for that product in the state where you're growing it? There's a lot of questions around it, and it, it all starts at the same place. You know, if you have, pardon the expression, kind of crappy strains, you're not going to have great results. So you got to start with a great strain. What makes a great strain or, or what people might call a signature strain, something unique? Yeah, um, a lot goes into that. You know, I would say it starts with what your goal is, you know, how you're growing, what your facility looks like, what your methods of growing are. And then you want to find strains that are matched perfectly to your style of growing. If you have traditional rolling tables, you're obviously not as worried about plant height. But if you have like the rack system or vertical integration, maybe you want to hunt for specifically short and squatting strains. So I'd first ask yourself what your mission is and how you're going to be growing it in what condition. And then you can start phenol hunting strains that match up to that and find something special of your own as the beginning to your library. And I, I couldn't agree more. If you're living in the Arizona, the climate there, something that doesn't like a lot of light, doesn't respond well to high temperatures, is probably not going to be your key to success. In an indoor facility, we generally have more control over the climate. But, Miles, you mentioned a couple of very key things. Your height restrictions are going to come into play with how large you can grow a plant, as well as the style of cultivation, the light intensity you can deliver, or whether you're an organic soil farmer or a hydroponic farmer, might influence further what strains are going to be successful for you uh, or what you're likely to have greater success with. So for your style of cultivation, Miles, maybe we can talk a little bit about that, what your preferred style is, and then what strains kind of suit that. And then we can talk a little bit about, you know, what it is that you're choosing or selecting out of those uh, cultivars or out of that pheno hunt. Yeah, for sure. So right now, you know, I have two different facilities to think about. I have a traditional growth style and then a high-tech vertical integration style to think about. So for the traditional style, having to fulfill both worlds, I really want to get long, tall, 
lanky OGs in the tra traditional grow, um, something that grows big and bushy and that I don't have to worry about necessarily as much vertical limit. And then for the other facility, I want to hunt some short and squatty plants. So to really cover that, you really want to focus on tall, lanky OGs, that gas, that good kind of stuff with large interval spacing that you can afford to take that hit on a traditional grow. And that's kind of what I want to focus on this particular side of the thing, like my tall mimosas or one of my tall waiting games. I want to focus those in my traditional grow. And then for the other spot that I need to think about, you know, something like a Max Fino that I've got or a Blueberry Muffin Fino, maybe a Forbidden Runs or two that are short and squatty. Those are the ones I want to focus on for the other facility. And using that as a foundation and a baseline, then I apply like my big three, as I call it. Does it have large terpene smell and taste? Does it have high trichome saturation and potency? And does it yield enough to make the cut? So I build my foundation based on what I'm doing. And then I pheno hunt based on my big three qualities I'm looking for. And then I establish my winner and put that into production as a official cultivar. That's and, great. So go ahead, Trek, please. And I was just gonna say, you know, it's 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 an arduous process and, you know, not as many people do it as they should. And, and you know, I've noticed a swing in the last, you know, I, I almost really feel it's really kicking off in the last 12 months, but in reality, you know, I know there's years of, of um, work that's gone into it before that, but you're starting to see a swing in the industry right now where strains are, are, are becoming more important. You know, you used to kind of have this where people would grow, you know, cannabis, if it was good quality, it was good. You know, you had people coming from the, uh, you know, from the, you know, black market and, you know, looking for A's versus B's or, or you know, blah, 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 but not really knowing strains. You're getting a more educated consumer now. And also you're getting growers like Miles that have the opportunity where they can actually take the time and hunt the strains, you know, and take the years of work that he's done and now bring it into an actual uh, commercial cultivation facility and see how those strains perform and, and you know, introduce them to, uh, um, you know, to the commercial market. So it's really interesting, cool thing that we're seeing develop and happen, you know, over these last few years as strains are really, really starting to become important. Um, um, and, you know, with, you know, the ability to pheno hunt and pick the right strains um, and actually, you know, have your own unique genetic, genetic, like Miles mentioned, he's got a Mac cut that, you know, it's a Mac strain and I'm sure tons of people out there or, you know, handfuls of people out there have Mac, but, you know, no one has the strain uh, uh, or the phenotype or the cultivar that, um, you know, Miles has and it's unique to him. So those are also interesting things is, you know, that kind of ties to the liquor world, right? Where it's like, you know, certain grapes produce a wine, but there's obviously huge differences between the exact same grape bottled in a, in a, in a bottle of wine that can cost 12 bucks or could cost $12,000. So uh, it's an interesting time and it's exciting to see how, you know, growers like Miles take advantage of that and, and really start to develop some amazing strains. Trek, that's a fantastic point. And Miles, thank you. I, I agree with both of you. Trek, your analogy, though, to the wine industry, I think is perfect to kind of start talking about this point. Everyone can grow a Chardonnay grape. There's nothing patented about it. It's a type of grape. It's a variety. No really different than a particular strain, a variety of cannabis. When you start to get into the unique qualities, for example, the Mac cut that Miles was referring to, uh, is short for Miracle Alien Cookies. There's a very famous cultivar called Mac One uh, 
bred and developed and shared by the Capulator, a well-known breeder. But he's talked about that strain and where Mac 1 is one phenomenal phenotype, one example of that variety, uh, it tended not to be a great breeder. And so other people that grew that seed variety were able to find phenomenal examples of the Miracle Alien Cookies strain that were better breeders. And Miles, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that path, how you came to be in possession of a unique Mac varietal. <laughs> yeah, sure. That was a combination of luck, of uh, being in the right time at the right place. Um, 2018 Indo Expo, Capulator was partnered with Rocky Mountain High on their booth. Uh, Absolutely. Got there early, waited six hours in line to get inside, waited another hour to get on the show floor, waited four more hours at Capulator's line. <laughs> um, you know, just to get a chance to throw money at this guy, you know, and every yes. single person there was, was limited to one pack per strain. So that is where I got the original waiting game. That's also where I got the original Mac from and a other ones from that specific Indo Expo. And, you know, if you miss those chances, it's, you can be gone forever. And 100%. speaking of the waiting game, the waiting game is a really cool strain that Capulator walked out and only gave to the first 500 people that were waiting in line. And that's something now that we can offer a green star. I'm going to show you guys a little preview of Ooh, what, exciting. A, what, what a pheno that doesn't make the cut looks like and what a pheno that does make the cut looks like. So right here is the waiting game that doesn't really make the cut. You know, small little colas doesn't really look like too much. And that's part of pheno hunting, that not all phenos you're going to find are great. And this one, nothing special, and we're going to cut it out. But her sister, right next door, is absolutely beautiful. And she's showing nice stacking, good frost production. She's blowing her sister out of the water. So that's a And that looks pretty early, Miles, right? You're, what, week four on that? Week five right now? Yeah. These are the first day of week five. So I like to judge these things partially throughout the entire process. <laughs> and I give them a pretty harsh review mid-flower because if they're doing something special on week four, I know they're going to be really nice at the end of harvest. So that's kind of what a good and a bad pheno look like right next to each other. And I've done that for every single strain that I have with multiple phenos. So a lot of work and time and eyes go into that. But the payoff finding a pheno like this one is just unbelievable. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Hey, Miles, did they, did they call it waiting game? Because it took you 11 hours to wait in line to get the cut? Yeah, it was ironically named. Yes, it was yes. ironically named. And you guys can see those waiting games over six feet tall right now. It's yeah. obviously really heavy on its Fruity Pebbles OG, but it has a nice Mac-style smell. And then you guys can see right over here the original Mac. It's really low to the ground. It looks totally different from its sister's genetics. And this is what our pure, almost sour Mac Fino looks like. Crazy. So, yeah, kind of cool stuff we're doing here. <laughs> it really is. And, and Miles, I was at those Indo Expos, and I got to say the line this last year uh, was much more well-maintained for Cap. They actually knew how long it was going to be and gave them a special spot still with Rocky, uh, which was great to see. But uh, I'm thrilled that you got waiting game, and thank you for sharing that uh, and those plants with us. Um, you know, you well, talked about Matt. Go ahead, Trek. I was gonna say it's interesting too, you know, because again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a novice when it comes to the, you know, genetic and breeding um, aspect of things. So 
uh, for me, and I'm also a big analogy guy, you know, for me, it's how do you wrap your head around something that you don't quite, you know, maybe understand the science of. Um, and, you know, people, you know, always ask me questions of, well, how can it be that big of a difference? Or if, if there's blue dream, it's blue dream, or if it's this strain, it's this strain, you know, and, and for me, it's, it's just like uh, uh, what you said, her sister right next to it, right? I mean, yeah, same seed came from the same parents, but just like when, you know, you have a brother and sister, you know, your brother might be uh, uh, Michael Jordan and you might be not Michael Jordan. And there's obviously a significant <laughs> difference. And, you know, some of that difference is the genetics, uh, but also some of that difference is the environment, the grower, the nutrients, you know, what it's given. I heard someone else, you know, give another great analogy where, you know, you can have twins. Um, but, you know, if one twin, you know, wakes up at, you know, 5 a.m. every morning and trains for five hours and goes to school and studies and learns and, you know, eats organically and has a whole regiment and the other brother sleeps in until 11 and eat McDonald's every day and plays video games and, you know, doesn't work out, you're going to get different results with literally, you know, identical genetics. So it's just crazy. So many different things go into play when making these strains and so much work and effort that, you know, the average consumer just doesn't see um, and a lot of times not understand. And, you know, it's crazy when sometimes you see that huge difference in price point. Um, and, and also that's really where for my side of things, you know, branding and marketing um, come into play to, you know, educate the consumer and help them understand, you know, the, the whys and the hows of, of these things, because, you know, nobody really ever sees behind the curtain, you know, back there with Miles and what's really going on and what it really takes to deliver some of these amazing genetics. The years of work that went into breeding, to stabilizing, to cultivating, and then to optimizing and hopefully nearing perfection on how you cultivate a strain, unfortunately, isn't largely translated to price point at dispensaries. A lot of the time, potency can drive the price point or availability, um, but it would be nice to start giving credit where credit is due and where longer strains that took uh, more effort to optimize or took longer to grow where those commanded a higher price point and cultivators could be recognized for their efforts and for what makes them special, their ability to bring out the master qualities of these genetics. So, Miles, you said that, you know, your big three is always terpenes, the cannabinoid profile, essentially it has to work. It has to give people the either medical or recreational effect they're looking for. And then also the yield. If it's not productive, it's, you know, might be something really interesting to keep in the library, but not something that's, you know, suited for mass production. But how much goes into when you're looking at a strain, knowing what your end product might be. So let's say Trek is designing a new brand. And that brand is going to be specifically for high-end, high-terpene concentrates. You know, is that going to change? Obviously, you're going to focus a little bit extra on the terpenes of the strain selected for that brand. But is that going to change your cultivation practices at all? Or are you more, you know, everything has to work in my box. And if it works in my box, then it's it's going to work great. Um. I would say that it doesn't really change our practices that much. If someone's looking to cultivate specific terpenes or their goal is terpenes, then it's my job just to match them with the right strain. But I'm growing all these strains to try to maximize their terpene production already, along with their trichomes and their weight. I, I want to maximize these strains regardless. 
So it's really about pairing them with the right strain for their terpene production and for concentrates or whatever than it is for growing them differently. That's great. Now I do have growers that will pull plants at different times, depending on what the end <laughs> product is based on the, you know, if we're looking for a, a live resin product versus a, a finished cured flower, the maturation times might be different. Yeah. Um, I could see people doing that, but for me, I'm just going to make the call based on the trichrome microscope results. Um, you know, I'm not going to chop something if it still has a lot of clear trichomes. If they can be chopped a little early and that's what the processor preferred, you know, maybe we could talk about that. But really, when it comes to that kind of stuff, it's more about changes in how we harvest as opposed to changes on how we grow that plant or, har or the timeline that we harvest it at. But it is, an interesting, it is an interesting th thing, though. You know, I mean, a lot of times we're talking about flour, but when you, you know, look at concentrates or other, you know, ways of consuming the flour or processing it, you know, there are different ways of doing it. And, you know, it's not something that, um, uh, uh, you know, that it, that it sounds like Miles and Greenstone um, are, are doing. But if you were, you know, for example, a processor or a concentrate brand and all you were doing was growing your flour for concentrates, you know, you could start to, you know, edit the, the growing habits and when you harvest and when not. But, you know, the time and effort and work that it goes into learning those things, uh, uh, nobody ever really does. Uh, right. I mean, you know, Miles, again, to talk about what he just said with, you know, the one pheno of the waiting game versus the other pheno of the waiting game. Right. I mean, that's that's cost and effort um, that goes into doing that. Right. And if one of those strains doesn't produce up to par, you know, then, you know, you lose money. And a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of production facilities and commercial facilities, they don't go down that path because, you know, that, you know, that tray that they're harvesting, that row that they're harvesting, you know, that's a projected, you know, X dollar of, uh, you know, X dollar amounts. And if you're experimenting with that tray, then, you know, you can't properly project what that dollar amount is. And at the end of the day right now, you know, so much of it comes down to margins and comes down to profitability and money, especially, you know, you know, if you're working, you know, as a small to middle scale, you know, operator. So to see facilities like Greenstone and Miles pushing the boundaries and experimenting and, and testing out these strains uh, 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 shows a lot about the product they're trying to produce uh, because it's not just about the money, it's about producing, you know, something extraordinary that someone else might not have and do. So it's just interesting all the different types of, of ways you can approach this. Absolutely. And Trek, you, you talked about, you know, R&D basically costing money and a lot of people can't afford it. When you're trying to just make it on thin margins, you know, saying that you're going to experiment with even 20% of your facility for new strains and pheno hunting, that makes it pretty challenging. The risk there is that the strains won't be as good, that the product quality isn't gonna be there, that there's gonna be a range of those expressions in the genetics. And some of the cultivators and a lot of the business operators just can't afford that right now, especially in markets where they're more mature and price compression has occurred. You know, It's a lot different when you're getting $4,000 a pound versus you know, 1,100. And so that decision of, of profitability has to play into, you know, what strains you're growing and how you can market those. Uh, guys, I don't know if you can see, but I threw up on the screen just an illustration of some trichomes. So we can kind of go over just really quickly, you know, that clear trichrome, 
which is a glandular sesalate, which is the, the one that looks like a lollipop, that's where you're going to have the most potency coming from, that round gland head at the top of the lollipop, if you will. Uh, as those gland heads mature, they're going to go and go from clear to cloudy and into amber. Miles, can you tell us what you like to see when you're harvesting? I don't know if you can see the screen, but we have everything from clear oh, yeah. to full amber. Yeah. Um, you know, there's like a window that you want to set for the harvest. And then it's kind of like personal preference, grower's choice. Um, the only thing you really need to follow with Healy is that a lot of them need to be cloudy. You know, the majority of trichomes need to be cloudy, period. And then it's kind of up to the grower. If you want your strains to generally have a more sativa effect, then you're going to want to harvest them when there's a small amount of amber trichomes. If you want your strains to generally have more of an indica effect, you're going to wait and harvest them so you have more amber trichomes. But 80 to 90% of those trichomes need to be completely cloudy before you know that they're ready to chop. Absolutely. And so for everyone listening, that's that picture at the bottom left where there's a little bit of amber, but most of the trichomes are nice and cloudy and milky white. And that'll give you the peak potency. Yeah, Guys, yeah, I'm, I'm studying and learning over here myself. Hey, that's what we're all here for. Miles, I know you've been working with some unique strains by a, a very uh, interesting breeder. Is there any chance that you have any flower pot or silly putty or some of those unique things that you can show us? Or is that still yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. baking, if you will? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so Sweet. this guy, Chris, he owns the uh, Volta Fiore. It's a really good company. They've been underground since 92. And with us, they've, this is the first time they've went public with their strains. And Silly Putty is one of their uh, production strains, one of their flagship strains. It's a cross from their original grease ball. And when we talk about special genetics, this is kind of what we're talking about. Chris's, Chris's strains, they look great. They smell great. They yield well. But really, the beauty is in the high it gives you. It makes you feel great. The best thing about his strains is the high. So... Here's some Silly Putty right here. And we're kind of looking at really nice stacking. Yeah. Really nice, beautiful colors. This is late week eight. So this flower right here is just like absolutely exceptional. And that's what his Silly Putty kind of looks like. Smells like rubber and I plastic. wish we were there to smell <laughs> it with you, Miles. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's amazing to have strains like that and just what Chris has to offer and what we can bring to the market for him is just something incredibly special. And I just wanted to give you guys another preview, one Ooh, preview fun. of uh, what a good pheno looks like compared to what a special pheno looks like right next to okay. each other. Um, so right now we're looking at the Miyazaki OG, okay? It's by Aficionado Estates. They have a heirloom bubble gum that they cross with Skywalker OG, SFB OG, and King Louis Thirteenth OG, yeah? So I hunted two separate phenos of this strain. And here's one where it's the classic golf ball look, mm -hmm. the, long, the long, lanky OG look like that. And the pheno I found that is really special is right here. See that girl? Yep. Much fuller, Miles. The, the winter we've got this spacing pheno. is much tighter. Yeah, we've got this pheno here next to this pheno here. And that's what a good pheno next to a special pheno looks like. Crazy. And so, what are you going to see there? You're going to see um, uh, uh, you're going to see more yield off of the off the special one, right? 
It looks yeah, like the, you know it's it's got fuller yeah. fuller bud uh, development, a little deeper, not as much as the golf ball, like you said, longer colas, bigger yeah. colas. What else do you think you're going to see out of that besides just the uh, uh, just the additional yield? Well, I think the thing is that we're not going to see too much else out of it that the first Vino doesn't have. The first Vino is incredible on the terpene profile. It has a sweet bubblegum gas, and the thing that makes this Vino that much more special is that it retains that high-level bubblegum gas smell. It has just as good of a terpenes on it, but the yield is also three to four times more than this vino. So it has everything else that this style of vino has, but brings something extra special to the table. And that is what we try to build our entire library of and only of. That's, that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's, and that's Eddie Murphy it, versus Charlie Murphy. Exactly. <laughs> that's a huge differentiator for Greenstone. And, you know, you guys aren't putting out what I would term commercial kind or, or B-grade uh, B grade kind. Trek, well, you have a lot of experience with the branding side. Miles has just shared with you a genuinely unique genetic. Yep. Once you had that in your library, you, you'd mastered growing it, you've got it really down and dialed. How do you turn that into a brand or, or how do you brand around that strain to get the notoriety, whether it's for your cultivator, whether it's for the breeder or whether it's for the brand as a whole, how do you capitalize on such a unique and beautiful cultivar? Well, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's a couple different things you can, you can do and a couple different fun things you can do too, right? Um, let's talk real quick about the two different phenomes. You know, we saw the two waiting games before, and now we saw the two uh, different Miyazaki OGs. Um, you know, an interesting, fun, cool thing to do there, especially from a brand standpoint um, uh, and from a, you know, garden standpoint to interact with, with consumers is, you know, taking those two strains and, and launching them and launching them in a form of a way where you offer, you know, a, a, a seven gram, you know, pack that has one eighth of Miyazaki OG, you know, whatever you want to call it, 12, 15, 32, you know, uh, um, and another one, Miyazaki OG, you know, 17, 18. So the same exact cut, but, you know, some way of, of letting people know they're the difference and then being able to have a consumer go into the store, first of all, getting, you know, an extremely rare, amazing genetic like that anyways is a treat right off the bat, but then getting two different uh, uh, versions of that, being able to go home and kind of taste test it, you know, like if you're out, like we mentioned before, wine or, or you know, uh, having a flight. So being able to come home and do that, you know, having some form of ability to go online, whether it's, you know, through Instagram, Facebook, um, uh, the website and give feedback. Uh, um, is a really cool thing because now you can take that strain. And like Miles mentioned, I mean, yes, one might have a little more higher yield, but they're, they're going to be very similar. Um, one might, you know, bring out a little more of the bubble gum. One might bring out a little more gas and, and giving that out to the consumers and let them, you know, experiment with it and taste it and get their feedback and find out what, you know, the, 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 you know, what your consumers actually want, you know, oh, wow, this one was better. That one was better. And sometimes you might find out that it's different than what you think. And then, you know, that always puts the grow in an interesting spot because if they like the one that's a lower yielder, you know, well, do I raise my price? Do I grow more of it? So, you know, that's kind of one interesting way and fun way to play with, um, play with something like that. But uh, to the other strains you were talking about the grease ball, um, what the flower pot, um, silly putty, uh, silly putty, things like that that are extremely, uh, uh, you know, basically 
unreleased new strains that people haven't even heard of or known, uh, that's really where you can have fun with things, right? And you can do different new things because it's not a blue dream. Even though a, a Miyazaki OG is, you know, extremely rare in of itself, um, you know, there are ways to get it. Some of these strains that we're mentioning, there are no ways to get it. You know, you cannot get that strain unless you're Miles or 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 Chris or someone very close to them. So now if you're someone who has a one-of-a-kind strain and the only place on the planet to get it is at this dispensary in Colorado, now you know your marketing options and, and your you know branding options open up. And you can really do anything you want to do. And there's a couple things you want to do, right? Is you want to really build a name for that strain. So you want to promote the strain name. You want to promote what's special about it. But Trek, um, maybe wanna... now is a point that we need to interject the difference between a strain. Maybe today's broadcast really should have been talking about unique cultivars instead of strains. Because if yeah. we were talking about, say, gelato, Sunset Sherbert by Cookies, you know, every Sherbert by Cookies is gelato. But there's a couple of very famous cuttings or phenotypes or cultivars, however you want to term it, that are unique, that are different than just the strain as a whole. And to get those cultivars is actually become fairly easy because they've been shared, they've been disseminated. The varieties Miles has been talking about are incredibly rare in that they haven't been shared around, right? They're, they're more or less either your pheno hunts or a very close knit groups uh, library if you will yeah essentially there may be other places on the planet that have the same strain but we have our very own cultivars that have never mm -hmm. been released which means we took those strains from seed and pheno hunted the winners tested them put them in production and now we have our very own cultivars that no one else has and that's kind of the whole point of the library that we built up here is that every single strain qualifies as that and if you look at big agriculture, they've been using cultivars to differentiate plant varieties for decades. When Perkins introduced Floribunda roses, Floribunda is might as well be talking cannabis sativa. It's a overarching genotype of rose. And when they introduced it, they didn't just say, oh, I'm going to sell Floribunda roses. Everyone was selling Floribunda roses. They said, I'm going to have the trademarked ice cap floribunda rose or the bolero trademark rose and we're starting to see cannabis producers look into patents look into trademarks and it is challenging because the federal government doesn't regulate cannabis doesn't allow cannabis so the patents generally aren't on a strain they're kind of around that whether it's like clothing with logos or so forth but there's a lot that goes into both protecting a unique cultivar and then how you market it. But I think it all goes into that cultivar piece that you have to let people know that what you have is different. Um, Miles, you're, you were showing those siblings, right? So how do you differentiate <laughs> yeah. those in your facility when you're doing your pheno hunt? Is it a, a numerical differentiator or how do you go and you know which strain is which and what sibling is different from what other sibling? Um, well, it was kind of my duty to bring in at least two different phenos because where I pheno hunted these at was not the same environment. It didn't have mm -hmm. the same uh, settings as this environment. So I needed to provide at least two different phenos because genetics will express different phenotypical traits based on the environment they're in. Mm -hmm. You know, some strains remain the same, 
with you change environments, which means that they have those traits encoded in their genetic and their genotypical traits, which means you're going to see it regardless of where it's growing. So I brought, uh, you know, two different phenos of that Miyazaki OG, for instance, to see how both would do in a new environment. So, you know, unfortunately, I wish we could keep every pheno of every strain <laughs> I've ever found, but uh, we have to make the hard choice on which is going to be the winner, which is going to be the established cultivar. So while one pheno I brought was really great, um, the other pheno I brought that we showed just did something really special in this environment, and it's establishing itself way above the rest. It's even stealing the show, as we've been calling it from this harvest, and it's my duty to, you know, deem one winner, um, and that has kind of showed itself to be the best. So we'll have a limited drop of the pheno that didn't quite make it and, you know, give as many people a taste as we can. But eventually we will have to cut that out and maintain just the one winning pheno. So it's, sometimes it's a heartbreaking process to cut out a pheno, and any breeder will tell you that they've regretted cutting out a pheno multiple times in their Always career. Always happens. But that's kind of the dark side of the, uh, of the process. Yeah, and we've all lost phenos that we wish we hadn't cut that if we thought, you know, oh, we just found a new application for this. But you mentioned something interesting, which was that the environment can really impact that phenotypic outcome. And that part of optimizing the strain is making sure that it grows well in your particular environment. But what goes into a environment, when we talk about it, we often talk about nature and nurture as a, a debate and your environment uh, is going to determine part of the outcome, but so will the genetics. And so the way I always describe that is the DNA or the genetics determines a range and a potential scale of outcomes. And the environment determines where specifically on that scale uh, that particular crop falls. When we look at environment, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about temperature and humidity and light and air movement and CO2. And a lot of people stop there, but you also have to think what's below the surface. You got the root zone temperature, the nutrient levels, whether they have enough oxygen and water, all of those factors play into very healthy plants. And the more you can optimize those particular factors, the more that cultivar will express, uh, I guess, the potential of its DNA. Uh, I was just listening to another podcast by a great scientist uh, who's done great work in the lighting field for horticulture and starting to on cannabis. The target saturation point for cannabis, guys, I got to tell you, they, they haven't even really found it yet. You know, you have Chandra's study uh, talking about 1,500 micromoles. The truth is up to about 2,000 or more, they still haven't hit a saturation. The higher up you go in that light low, the more delicate and the more perfect you have to be on all eight of those other inputs. Because if you go a little bit off that tightrope, everything comes crashing down to the ground. We don't want that. But um, it's fascinating how much that environment can play into that final outcome. Miles, is there anything you do that might be different or uh, that you do to control the environment or that you provide to your plants that might be unique, that you're willing to share, of course? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I might be giving some state secrets away, but I'm going to give you this one anyway. Um, you touched on something really important that is, you know, not utilized enough. Uh, temperature and humidity and PPM and VPD all are related, you know? So one thing I do here is once I feel like the plants are established and feeling good, then I will start to push them. 
so how to do that? Okay, you can't just give the, pl the plants a bunch more light and expect them, and everything else remains the same, and expect them to do something more. So if you've ever seen, like, a music production studio where they have the board of the switches and all the different switches can go in different levels, that's mm -hmm. how I think of the different parameters of the environment. And the key to that is that you have to raise all those levels together. If you raise your heat and you raise your light level and you raise your nutrient level and you raise your humidity level, all relative to each other, that's how you push your plant. So you can use heat to your advantage. You can use too much light to your advantage. You can use all those things to your advantage if you know how to move the sliders together. And mm -hmm. that's how I do it. That's it's, it's, an awesome tip, Miles, and thank you. I hope it wasn't uh, a state secret that uh, you're going to be in handcuffs for. I can tell you from my own experience, you know, sometimes those sliders, as you call them, the different levels of the inputs, can actually have pretty interesting impacts on one another. For example, let's say you're limited on your light intensity, but you can raise a lot of the other factors pretty easily. If you're increasing your CO2, that light intensity can actually work photosynthetically more efficiently. And so you might be able to achieve a better growth rate without having to increase that light level beyond what you can possibly do currently by manipulating the CO2 levels and maybe the vapor pressure deficit to get a little bit more uptake of nutrients, essentially a drier environment to increase the uptake. But knowing what controls are at your disposal and then knowing how to manipulate them is what differentiates a good grower from a great grower. Yeah. And I think too, also <laughs> understanding the uh, um, the results and the effects of those changes is super important too, right? And that's where you're seeing kind of the future of cannabis start to go. Uh, Miles mentioned earlier that you know he's got his traditional grow, um, uh, you know that's traditional style growing LEDs, HPS, you know double ended uh, uh, lights, uh, uh, rolling tables, you know the traditional style of growing. Um, and now you're starting to see things like he has in his, his you know, uh, uh, new facility that's or, or new expansion of the facility that's the vertical growing, a little more technological advanced with software helping, you know, run or really record these things. So when you make these changes and make these adjustments, you can look back on and say, oh, wow, this is really what happened here. This is really what happened there. And you can use those things to experiment because a lot of times what you see is people mess with the dials. And, you know, I always notice two big, two big things, you know, it's funny that you use that analogy because I always use the analogy of like changing the, uh, the dial on the old school radio where you're trying to go back to the station and you're two <laughs> off, three off. And sometimes you're like, am I way off? And, um, you know, that happens a lot as you forget where you are or you lose where you are because, you know, instead of turning it just a hair, you turned it too far or you thought you turned it to the right, but really it was to the left. And now you're way off and you're lost and you don't know how to get back to center. And I feel like growers and, and grows find that a lot when you start making these tweaks and these adjustments and you're yeah. not properly recording them or you don't really exactly understand what you're doing or how you're affecting other things. You can throw yourself into this tailspin where you can't figure out how to get back to normal or why your plants are being affected the way they are. So it's interesting to see where, you know, growers like yourself, Miles, will be able to go um, with these additional, you know, technological advancements in cannabis and bringing kind of some of these, you know, software programs into play to help track and record these things and really, you know, have records of, you know, years of growing the same species.
strain and slowly, you know, every harvest, you know, okay, a little bit of the tweak, can we push a little more, a little bit of tweak? Um, so, you know, that's a really exciting aspect, I think, of where cannabis is going. Um, and for me personally, again, because I'm more on the branding side of things, it's exciting for, for from a branding standpoint, um, because it allows you to, you know, to, to, you know, really have something unique and special um, uh, that you can brand and have that consistency um, and have something different than anybody else had, right? I know IP, trademarks, things like that is stuff we've touched on a lot, but we're really just scratching the surface. Um, and, and David, like you mentioned, there's, it's very difficult to protect that properly without federal legalization, but there are loopholes and you're, and you're seeing people yeah. do that. Um, and try to find some way to, you know, copyright or patent, you know, different names, you know, like you said, the, uh, you know, changing the actual name of something or creating a specific special name for, for your version of the Fino, you know, to stand out above the rest is, is one thing that people are doing as well, too. So it's all, you know, for, for me, it's all, you know, extremely fascinating, you know, and exciting to see where things are going to, where things are going to go. Absolutely, Trek. And you brought up two things that I think we need to expand upon a little bit, gentlemen. One is that the precision that a cultivator has, the data collection is a critical component of being a good cultivator, knowing what was done to a plant, what wasn't done, what the difference from this round to the next round and so on. I've seen cultivators get an amazing crop and spend the rest of the year, four plus more harvests, trying to get back to what they had done exactly to get that great result. But they change a lot of things at once, or they might have been doing, you know, some experiments. They weren't recording the notes as, as much as they should have. And it becomes this search for the Holy Grail. You know, it's out there. You made it. You got it. You had it. And then all of a sudden, you can't get it again. There's nothing more frustrating. And that's why data collection is so key. And having miles is fantastic, but giving miles a stack, like you said, of years of data, of results, of known trials and results can improve what miles is able to do or any cultivator that takes the time to parse through that data and utilize the findings. Now, the other thing you brought up is the patentability, the trademark ability, the, the, the avenues people are going to protect, whether it's what we call intellectual property or whether we, we, we just call it their strains, their brands. You know, an example would be that you might want to trademark Blue Dream, but that's a problem. If your product name was Blue Dream, then unfortunately the product inside of it, if it had Blue Dream is completely unprotectable because it, you're not talking about a, a name, it's a description of the product. And so you can be making mistakes on what you trademark. Now, you also look at patents and patents, there's a couple of different types. There's utility, there's design. There's actually a one of the specific types of patents, the three main is plant patents. Plant patents have their own section at the US Patent Office. It is one of the most heavily litigated and the biggest cost and outcome in terms of uh, findings or, or judgments of any of the court cases that are out there because these plants are often disseminated globally by huge, huge companies that can afford the plant patent process, which is expensive in and of itself. And then to actually enforce a plant patent can be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Um, and so it's not being that common, but the plant patent is available. And what a lot of cannabis producers have done because it's not a design patent. It's not about the design of a plant. It's not a utility patent unless it's 
a system that produced the plant, but what they do is they patent the chemotype, the chemical fingerprint of the strain. And that is dangerous to us, everybody, because there's over 500 chemical compounds. And whereas there's no two fingerprints that are completely uh, alike, there's enough uniqueness uh, or, or overlaps where if the patent office isn't careful, they might overwrap a single cultivar or chemotype with too many others. And that is, is very risky. The reverse side of the coin is that 500 different chemical compounds and different amounts and ratios mean that the likelihood of two different cultivars, even siblings, Miles, right? Like two of those waiting games, having the exact same chemical fingerprint is almost impossible, like two snowflakes having the same shape. So there's that added level of protection. But how do you feel, both of you, about people patenting plants, people patenting specifically cannabis varieties or cultivars? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know yet, but I, I would like to see a wave if someone has a special pheno of the strain of their own, I would like to see them be able to have more freedom in moving that around. Like, what if you wanted to offer other companies or other grows your services with your specific strains that may match their style of growing perfectly? It would be a lot easier if you had some more breathing room to offer your signature strains to the market as opposed to having to do this weird like gray market dance where there's really no like regulations for those specific things. You know, imagine if someone was in vertical integration and you had strains that were perfect, like these blueberry muffins, these things only stretch six inches from start to finish. Mm. So it would be nice for someone like myself or other growers who have found special phenos to have some kind of more backing by regulations in a way to move them around, to sell them to other people, to, you know, to, to make a living off all that work that you've already done. So I, I don't know what that looks like, but it certainly needs attention. Well, and even a way to, uh, um, to be able to take advantage of, of what you've created or found, right? Because, you know, if yeah. I'm hearing what you're saying properly and, and you know, tying it to, to my thoughts and my thinking, you know, you get that you know that you hunted and that you love and that's perfect and it's the winner um and you want to create a cultivation facility in florida but how do you get that strain there how do you get that genetic there right because at the end of the day yes you can get it to seed but then once you get it to seed you know is it really the same strain in the same cut or is it just, you know, a, another version of that that's not exact? Because really the only way to have it be the exact one is to clone it and bring the actual plant material or maybe bring it back to tissue culture. But still, those are ways that you're not able to transplant or move these strains. So, you know, to a certain extent, you create this, you know, beautiful, amazing cannabis strain and, and unique genetic, but it's to a certain extent locked and trapped inside of you know, those four walls or that state and it can't go anywhere else right now. So, you know, that is a big, you know, aspect, uh, you know, or, or burden that's on the cannabis industry right now that federal legalization hopefully will will help change that or, or other things will help will help change that. But, you know, it, also back to the patenting and being able to, you know, patent these things and, and not being able to right now or copyright. 
um, again, you know, that goes back into the branding of it, right? Where, you know, I know Greenstone, uh, one of the things you guys are doing is whenever you release a strain, um, I believe, you know, you know, if it's Silly Putty, it's GC Silly Putty or, or GS Silly Putty for Greenstone. If it's, you know, Blueberry Muffin, it's GS Blueberry Muffin to start putting that branding and recognition around the fact that this is Greenstone's unique cut. So, you know, when you see the GS you know that it's special or it's different or it's ours versus when you're in California and you're getting blueberry muffin and it's not GS blueberry muffin, then then it is a different strain. And, and you know, cookies, I think, is probably, you know, one of the best examples of, of doing that, right? Of taking a strain that's, you know, was very unique back then, but it's more common now. But again, like you said, even still, you know, the cookies cuts of things or the cookies branded version of their gelato or their cookies, you know, garnishes, you know, higher prices and more, you know, notability than what potentially could be an even better version of that cultivar grown by Miles or somebody else, but it's not the real cookies you know, is it the real deal or the real thing? So that's really where branding and marketing ties into that because, you know, the consumer only knows what the consumer is told and seen to a certain extent, right? You know, I always go back to and love the old marketing campaign, I believe by, you know, AT&T or, or even Verizon does it now with their big map. Like, I don't freaking know how accurate that map is of Verizon's coverage, but I know that map is in my face all the time and there's a bunch of red spots and very little white spots and they tell me they've got the best coverage in the world. So guess what the conversations that people have when they talk, you know, about phone coverage is, oh, Verizon's the best. Well, <laughs> why is Verizon the best? Because they have a nice map that makes it really yeah. easy for me to understand that they're the best. Well, that's a couple of really incredible things you just mentioned, uh, Trek. One is that a cultivar, uh, cookies, a strain, which then became very famous as a cultivar, uh, became a brand. And in fact, not only a brand, it became a company, which is one of the more successful or, or a successful uh, MSO at this point. Another thing you brought up was the uh, naming structure that by putting Greenstone in front of the variety, it was a differentiator. This has been going on in the orchid world for a long time. Taiwan is a leader in tissue propagation and one of their lead exports is uh, cut flower and uh, living orchid plants. And the Taiwan Sugar Company is always putting their name in the front of the, uh, the, the cultivar name. So everyone knows everything is theirs. Every time there's a list of strains available at a nursery, you're going to see their name 20 times in a row because every single variety lists that. And it's a way of differentiating the varieties and it's a way of marketing themselves at the same time. And, eventually, and it's a great practice. And eventually you just start as someone purchasing the genetics, you just start skipping through the ones that don't have their name in front of it first and just reading the ones that do, you know, and that's something well, that, you, you know. You associate that name with a quality level, an expectation, yep. and that's the key about brands. It's, it goes beyond choosing something. They start to attribute almost like a reflected glow of their experience to the whole brand. So the better and the more consistent their experiences with your brand, especially if you make branding part of your effort, the more loyal that particular cannabis consumer is going to be because they know that they love Dogstar or they know they love Greenstone Fire and they want to try all of the varieties, Silly Putty 1, Silly Putty 7, Waiting Game 13. It, they know that that brand delivers fire and that is going to be the thing they're going to try. And that's what it's about. You're, you're taking a fantastic strain you're putting some branding effort into it, some thought. 
you're disseminating, you're sharing that with the community, and, and hopefully you're getting the response that uh, that a unique strain such as that would deserve. But then and, you got to uh, then you got to keep doing the work too, right? Because a lot of brands get there, they have a couple home runs, and then they live off that for you know the next ten years, and you know they start caring less about quality, less about consistency, and more about how do I take advantage and capitalize on this. And I yep. think you know it's a very thin line, and you know I have to consistently remind myself. And, you know, remind others when I speak that, you know, just because I speak about, you know, a brand and how to capitalize and monetize and expand and do this, that that's not the number one driving force by any means, right? It's, it's really Miles and him in the garden doing what he does is the driving force and the foundation. But with all that hard work and effort, you need to find a way to, you know, express that to the consumer and then take advantage of it. And, you know, you still, though, they need to go back to the lab and back to the grow and develop the next strain or continue that quality and make sure that, you know, you consistently deliver that experience to the consumer. And again, you know, that's some of the exciting things that, you know, we're seeing with technology. We know it's one of the things that, you know, Agrify is doing with their units that, you know, I'm excited to see how some of those strains grow from. Um, and it's just, you know, it's all just really cool time to be in cannabis right now with all the changes that are happening and you know i guess you can say that from the beginning of cannabis right every month is a year every you know year is a decade and you know it's ever moving we've so got a quickly. lot of time to catch up on track there was a <laughs> lot of years in basements we weren't out in the light i know that very well and uh it's great to see it coming into its own to see it become its own agricultural commodity to see real talented people like miles you know, working with the plant and it not being something that uh, will land them in jail. Um, and we're starting <laughs> to see the results, the unique phenotypes, the unique breeding that can only happen at a larger scale. So I really think that, you know, this has been a fantastic episode. Miles, thank you. I know you've been going through and putting beautiful flowers <laughs> in front of the camera for us. I can't thank you enough. Uh, Trek, You're thank you welcome. so much for your input. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> Miles, uh, thank you again for joining us and uh, everybody, sure, thank, thank you. you for tuning in and listening. It's been so much fun. I have so much more I want to get into, like, you know, inbred lines versus F1s and what breeders think uh, and how or whether or not they want you to continue breeding with their strains. But maybe on a future episode, there's only so much time in the day. <laughs> Guys, this has been so much fun. Thank you again. Uh, Thank I hope you. everyone joins us on the next episode of Agrify Live. Everyone Miles, have a great save, day. Save some, save, some, save some samples for me, buddy. I'm flying to Denver oh, in, a couple, in a couple weeks. Yeah, oh, silly puppy flower it. pot, <laughs> waiting game, all of them. Miles, you take you know care. I will. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. We love to hear from our audience. Have a great idea for a guest or a topic you'd like us to cover? Thoughts you want to share? Reach out to media at agrify.com. Don't forget to stay connected with Agrify at Agrify Corp on all platforms and by visiting us at www.agrify.com. See you next time for another episode of The Future of Growth.